How good it is to praise our Lord together. All hail King Jesus. Amen. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, so glad you could be with us today at the end of spring break. Hopefully you had uh, uh, some time to get away or something. My wife and I were blessed to be in Florida to hear our son Zane preach last Sunday. So that was a delight. Uh, it was 75 and sunny there. It's nice to have our family in Florida, and we thought it would be great. We'll come back to Iowa. Winter will be over, and spring will be here. Yeah, there's a little bitterness in my tone. I apologize for that. But I got to watch the service online and hear uh, Pastor Thomas, and I love the question that he presented last week, and that is, what fruit have you seen in your life from our study in the book of Acts. And I hope that question is resonating in your mind as you process your way through this book as well. It's hard to believe we're nearly done. We're winding it up, winding it up now, and I uh, trust that the Lord has used it in your life to bear some fruit. Remember, as we're setting up today's passage to, to Paul, uh, it had been decided that the adherence to the law was not necessary for the Gentile. Commitment to Jesus was necessary for salvation. Centuries of religious practice and procedure had been changed because Christ had met the demands of the law for them. This led to a massive shift. Those in opposition to Paul were sure that he was teaching a wrong or different message. Remember, Paul asked if he could address the crowd, and he saw an opportunity to explain, to, to share his testimony, to proclaim Christ even to those who had attacked him, even to the soldiers. You've got to love the way Paul does that. We also saw in that passage that, that Paul worked to unify the people. He's saying, listen, I, I'm a Jew. I, I'm, I'm with you. And last week, Pastor Thomas brought a, did a great job of bringing out that, that need to reinforce unity within the church. Are we together? And, and how does a whole disciple respond to disunity? These thoughts will be carried further out in today's passage. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, we just pause to reflect on how great you are. There is none like you. You are the holy, the mighty one, the creator of all. Our God and Father, we thank you for how good you are. And we thank you for your son. And we just say all hail King Jesus. Lord, we thank you for your indwelling spirit for us as believers to guide us and to lead us to empower us for your work. Lord, we just offer you praise. Father, we lift up those who are missionaries for our global workers. We just pray for them around the world and in our own nation. We just pray that you would empower them and, and encourage them even this day. Lord, may they see you bringing fruit for their labors. Would you be glorified? Father, we pray for our East Campus today as they prepare for their worship service. Lord, just bless that time together. And Father, for us here, we just ask that your spirit would move mightily in each of our hearts and lives, 
that you would just take over in this place and have your way and your will go forward. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Every now and then as we go through Acts, it's important to go back to this central or key verse in, in chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we continue to watch how God is making this happen. This is carrying this out in the time of the apostles. Within this, we, we ask many questions. We see how God is, is working this out, but we also look at some of the things that God is allowing to happen, and we say, God, why, why? Why are these difficulties coming? And today's text also serves as a good reminder that God is in control even when it seems like things are out of control. But more centrally, I think in today's text, we see how Paul strategically aligns himself or connects with various people whom he encounters, both for his own preservation and for the proclamation of the gospel. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 22 or turn on your device and be ready. And we're going to pick it up kind of mid-narrative here in, in verse 22. So Acts 22:22. 22. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, But I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Now, what, what we have prior to this is, is that the Jews are, are listening to his defense, and they're triggered by Paul's mentioning of the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, prior to that, they were starting to connect with him as he reminds them that he too had persecuted the church. And he, he's reminding or even informing them for the first time that he had given his approval to the stoning of Stephen. You see, that would have been a connecting point with some of those people there. Paul is strategically seeking alignment with his attackers on any point possible. Some years back, I was taking a, a group of students on a mission trip in Kentucky. And as we were uh, going out in various groups to these churches and, and running ministries during the day and in the evening, one evening we were driving back and I was driving in a rental van and we were going through this windy mountain road that just wasn't built the best. I'm trying to make an excuse for myself here. But 
they, instead of not cutting out the rock, they just built the road around it. And the shade had come over that rock that's protruding out into the road, and I hit it with this rental van. I mean, I hit it hard. <laughs> Jarred everything. And from that point on, we had one wheel pointed this way and another one pointed this way. Completely out of alignment. Had to do some roadside repair. And if you understand, if you ever driven a vehicle that's out of alignment, you understand it's hard. It's pulling in different directions. And we see, we see Paul here trying to align himself with the attackers, trying to, to re, reduce some of that resistance, if you will. And here Paul's ultimately saying, listen, I understand your concern. I had the same concerns. I get you. I'm with you. And this is quite wise on his part. Certainly the alignment is limited because uh, it, it's simply enough to give them a reason to listen to him. It diffuses them long enough to, to give them a chance to hear sound reasoning, to hear the gospel. And I want you to hold on to that thought. Clearly, the alignment stops at the point at which Paul is unwavering about the truth. Paul will not compromise. He's not seeking to align with his attacker so much that he would deny Christ or deny the mission that he's on. Now, I want to just pause here to get us thinking. Too often, we Christians can easily identify the things that differentiate us from an unbelieving world. It's easy to point out. It's easy to notice. And sadly, we're good at it. But then in the same breath, we wonder why we don't get the opportunities to share the good news of Christ with people. Now back to our text. Notice that Paul is then forced to deal with the Roman tribune. And the tribune orders that Paul be examined by flogging. It's his way to find out what this conflict is really about. He must have doubted Paul's honesty. Now, it's worth noting here that this examining by flogging uh, would have been the same type of flogging that Jesus received prior to being crucified. This is no minor thing. This is merciless. This is brutal. This is something that would have left his body torn up with exposed flesh. Remember, it was so devastating to Jesus that he had to have help to carry the cross. So once again, Paul, Paul wisely aligns with the enemy. Interestingly, he allows them to, to stretch him out in preparation for the flogging. So they've got him chained out and ready, and then he makes the statement that changes everything. Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned. Understand that this becomes a wait, he's one of us moment for the Romans. And obviously they're concerned for themselves. Already bound unlawfully, they condemn themselves with that action alone. So it's very possible that, that Paul's being strategic to let, let them do that to him before he reminds them or informs them that he is a Roman citizen. He's nearly flogged. And now they would have been grateful that he stopped them. 
Now, it's good to know that if, if Paul could not have proven his Roman citizenship, he would have been executed for it. It was a capital punishment for falsely claiming to be Roman, a Roman citizen. And it's somewhat probable that Paul kept some proof with him or some way of identifying himself. I think it's worth noting that clearly we see here there's nothing wrong with using the law in our favor when possible. It's okay to do that. But obviously our hope must always be in the Lord, not in the law. In this case, Paul doesn't necessarily need supernatural intervention. Paul can simply use the laws of the land to prevent further harm. Let's keep going. Look at verse 30. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded that those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now we've got a loaded narrative here, don't we? There's so much going on. Notice first that, that Paul begins his address, and what he says in verse 1 is looking, or it says, looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. I, I highlight that again because notice he says, brothers. He's addressing them in a way as to say, hey, we're friends, we're, we're close friends. We are uh, members of the same group, of the same family, if you will. Once again, Paul seeks to align himself with his Jewish audience. Thomas pointed this out in last week's text, this idea of saying, brothers, it's it's, we're family. Uh, And he says, listen, I too live to honor God. And I live my life before him in good conscience up to this day. I, I want you to understand this is a very significant statement. And it's significant because it would have been the ambition of every member of the group that was against him. He's saying, listen, I have the same ambition as you. I desire to honor God. And Paul knew this about them. He's he's drawing alignment. Now, the Sanhedrin was was the the Jewish court of law, and it was established established centuries earlier by Moses. There were actually Sanhedrins all over Israel, but this Sanhedrin was like the supreme court, and the high priest presided over the Sanhedrin. Now, obviously, Ananias does not like Paul's attempt to align himself or to, to connect with them. So he orders Paul to be struck. 
We're going, wait a minute. But can I just say, sadly, it is an unfair assumption to expect the unredeemed to be reasonable. It's an unfair assumption to expect the unredeemed to be reasonable. Paul seems to respond in anger here, or at least in pain here. We can only assume that Paul was actually struck. It's possible that his, his comment came back quick enough that it interrupted that, but I would suggest that he probably was struck. Understandable frustration on Paul's part, right? He makes an honest and sincere statement only to be struck in the face. So he speaks out against it. God is going to strike you. What a huge statement to the the high priest and to the Sanhedrin, right? It's a pronouncement of judgment. It was a very, very bold thing to do because he's saying, not only are you going to be struck, you're going to be struck by God himself. He's saying, you are acting out against God. Your very action is against that of God, and he is going to retaliate against you. Then he adds an insult, you whitewashed wall. The outside walls of tombs were often whitewashed. They were painted to make the appearance better, but the inside was full of the bones of the dead, implying you look good on the outside, but you are rancid. You are dead within. Understand here, Paul takes a significant shot at him. This is no a minor thing that he said. It's almost as, as though Paul has, doesn't have much time for the arrogant religious leaders anymore. And given his history with them, we can see why. Paul's clearly fired up. And there's some debate as to why uh, Paul would say that. One theory is that, that Paul's vision was so poor that he didn't know who he was speaking to. And, and that argument would be built on verse 1 where it says, looking intently at them. And in the idea was that it was more of a, you know, probably a weak theory, but possible. The second theory was that Ananias was in the role, but Paul was unaware that he was. Another theory was that Paul was just confused. So he just spoke... Another one was that he was, in re- he was just reacting to the pain of being struck. While it would seem that we do not know the exact reason for Paul's rash statement to Ananias, he was certainly justified in saying it, right? Was he? Not exactly. Look at the very next line of the text, or verse, or verse 5. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. What Paul does here, I think, is amazing. In the the midst of this tirade, he stops. In the midst of putting Ananias in his place, he, he hits the brakes. Why? Part of the reason is in how he addresses them. He says, brothers, right? I didn't know, brothers. I think it's important to note here that Paul's not seeking to develop an additional rift between he and them. Remember, he seeks alignment. 
It often bothers me when I see believers trying so hard to place themselves above others, to sort of exalt themselves. A couple of weeks ago, some of our staff went to the EFCA Central Dis- District Conference, and they had a pre-conference event the night before on evangelism. One of the keynote speakers there was, was Ray Ortland. He made some interesting comments as it pertains to evangelism. He said, it's tough to share Christ with a culture that thinks they are right and righteous. Almost everyone in our culture today is doing something towards some cause, and therefore they're seeing themselves as good because they're doing good things. And he, he made the statement, no one embraces his or her own sinfulness. Then he said this, Christians should be the quickest to acknowledge their sin. He said, we can be impressive or we can be known. We cannot be both. We can be impressive or we can be known. We cannot be both. He stressed the need that as Christians, we need to be the ones who acknowledge our own struggle and our own need. Therefore, we approach people differently. I'll swing back to this thought. Let's go back to Paul. Also, we see Paul is not acknowledging or honoring the man himself here, but rather the authoritative position that he holds. Acting justly or not, the high priest holds a place of honor. God honored that position, even if culture didn't. Paul would write in Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Back in the Old Testament, Exodus 22, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Wouldn't you say that even in our time, when it comes to various various national political leaders. They can make themselves easy to insult. Ever found yourself doing that? Looking at the statements or the behaviors of various political leaders and going, ah, and you say various things about them. I think we need to remember the difference between disagreeing and insulting. So let's go back to the question, was Paul wrong to speak to him in this way? Some would say no, based upon the law-breaking that Ananias does by ordering Paul to be struck. They would say God had him speak the truth in a direct and painful way to Ananias. Remember how Jesus addressed the scribes and the Pharisees? Matthew 23, verse 27. Jesus said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus said it like it was. It was insulting to them, but it was accurate, right? I'm sure Jesus was not inaccurate. But wait a minute, Paul's not Jesus. He's been speaking for him. And what he said about Ananias was apparently true. We know that according to the ancient Jewish historian Josephus. Ananias was known as corrupt and lawless in his position. He held his office with nothing more in mind than his own interest and well-being. However, I think Paul's own words provide us the final answer to the question. I did not know you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Paul has offered us no reason to question the honesty of that statement. If he states that he didn't know, then he did not know. I think it's even further supported by his statement, brothers, I did not know. Again, that alignment there. Paul displays humility and a willingness to admit he was wrong. Some years back, I was working with a church that was struggling. And I had to meet with the pastors and the elders, and I had to meet with this party that was making some accusations. It was amazing to me to compare the humility versus the pride. And it made it very clear. I saw a misuse of Scripture I saw things being twisted on one side. And I saw humility and integrity on the other. Note Paul's response to the correction. A behavior change due to being molded by the word. Perhaps Psalm 1 was coming to his mind. Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons. Its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. Paul called the law to his mind, and he stops himself and he acknowledges that Scripture speaks against what he had just done. Have you found yourself in a position like that? You spoke or acted in the wrong, and it was pointed out to you. Maybe somebody else pointed out to you, or maybe the Spirit of God just revealed it to you. How did you respond in that moment? Did you stop yourself? Did you humble yourself? Did you self-correct using Scripture? Did you identify that? Let's continue, verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, he cried out in the councils, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope 
and, to the, and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no re- resurrection, nor angels, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. And some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply we find nothing wrong in this man what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him and when the dissension became violent the tribune afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them commanded the soldier to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks I want to suggest to you that Paul displays tremendous insight here He's quite crafty. His knowledge is significant. He has knowledge of their beliefs and of their patterns. And initially, they are united against him. He's the enemy, and Paul knows this. So Paul finds a way to align himself with the Pharisees. And that alignment would garner support for him. It pulls the attention away from himself and places it on the differences between his accusers. He had wisdom to divide his accusers by aligning himself with the Pharisees. He declares himself, listen, I'm a Pharisee. I'm the son of a Pharisee. And then he makes a statement that would cause the Pharisees to agree with him about it. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What do we read? Dissension, division, they contended sharply, saying, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or angel spoke to him? Amazing. The Pharisees who started out against Paul here are now defending his position. And Paul aligns himself with them and pulls them in, and their attention is now diverted. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Maybe we pause here and say for a second, what, what role does our intellect play? And, and how does that connect with doing everything by faith? Right? If we're empowered by the Spirit as we do things, we have to realize that we've been given an intellect as well. I believe God expects us to use our minds. We are created in His image. Paul's wise enough to say, hey, Roman citizen... A Pharisee, who, by the way, believes in the resurrection. And we're told the tribune sees the danger and gets Paul out of there. And look at verse 11. It's stunning. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. Wonderful. Sure, Paul uses his mind and his intellect to protect himself, aligning himself with various people at the right points. But the Lord comes to encourage him that night. It's all right. Take courage. I'm with you. What you're doing is what we have to do. How amazing. Have you had those moments of encouragement? 
where the Lord just does something to help you to lift your spirits. A few years back, I remembered preparing a message. It was in a December. And, and it was one of those messages that was just became so beautiful to me. The more I worked on it, the deeper it, it just hit me. And it, I was so excited to present that message. And I presented it that two times, and then another time on a, on a Monday evening service we had. And I felt like it just went completely flat. And I remember struggling for a couple weeks. I was going, Lord, what, what happened? How, how could that, uh, that text, how could that message have been so beautiful to me and impact me so much and seem to impact no one? About 18 months later, we had a group that wanted to be baptized. And one of the men in that group cited that sermon that I had shared as what prompted him to want to follow the Lord deeper and to be baptized. Eighteen months later, it was one of those moments I was just like, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for working in ways that we don't even see. And here Paul's have one of those moments, just take courage. It's all right. I'm right here with you. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, it's beautiful. No doubt the Lord knew that Paul needed encouragement that night. And maybe Paul was just struggling, feeling lonely. And God shows up in the right place, in the right time, with exactly what he needed. God has a plan to work out. Paul will go to Rome, even if he's in chains. I want to circle back now to those thoughts about alignment. I wonder if more people would be ready to be real about life and its struggles if we led the way in that. Ray Ortland's comments really hit a chord with me. And they led me to ask, am I quick to see the reasons why I cannot connect or align with someone? Do I immediately distance myself from people who do not think or act just like I do? I get concerned in the Christian culture when we get in this protectionistic mindset and where we, where we pull ourselves away from an unbelieving world. Because I believe it's fear-driven. Am I, am I quick to see all the reasons why, why i got to get away? Or, or, or am I looking for ways to align? Church, what if humility and transparency was what we were known for? People who readily just say, yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sinner, but by the grace of God. A few minutes ago, we shared the Lord's Supper together. What are we doing? We're remembering our sinfulness, and, and we're remembering that we're desperately in need of forgiveness, of mercy, of grace, and of salvation. So we share the bread and the cup together because we remember that, that Jesus did it for us. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ has been born of God. As Christians, you and I are just sinners redeemed by faith in Christ. It's all the work of God. You and I didn't accomplish it. Jesus paid it all. Didn't we sing that? 
That truth should help us be willing to align ourselves with those who need to know the forgiveness and mercy, grace and salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may our gratitude drive us to draw people into alignment with you through faith in what your son accomplished. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. And Lord, as we read through and study these accounts of the apostles, we just are amazed by it. And in our mind's eye, we do our best to take it in and imagine what it was like. But Lord, would you just teach us what we need to know? And Lord, would you be uh, the one who just drives us toward lives of gratitude where we just humbly admit that we're weak and we're broken and we're sinful apart from the goodness of Christ? Father, may we live our lives where we seek to make connections with people, to align ourselves wherever we can without compromise without drawing ourselves into sin, but saying, I can understand you. I was there. I'm a sinner, but Jesus has made me new. Father, would you just be glorified in us? Would you use us? Lord, may we make a difference for your kingdom that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.